Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. February 19th, 2010. It's Friday. We're going to do Friday Light on Friday. I mean, the world might actually come to an end. (laughs) What is Chris doing? Friday Light on Fridays? Is he out of his mind? Maybe. It could be just proof that I am. I don't know. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You know what's funny? There's there's so many things I want to talk about right now, and it's Friday light. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, <laughs> so Monday's program is going to be interesting. I, I want to let you know now. Okay, first of all, if you haven't, if you're a member of the Pirate Cove and you haven't signed up for tomorrow's uh, webinar. Uh, uh, Andrew Deloach of uh, Take the Stand is going to be doing an introduction to uh, Christ-Centered Apologetics tomorrow at uh, noon Eastern here uh, in our Pirate Cove. Actually, if you want information on how to sign up, go to the Pirate Cove and sign up. It's going to be all kinds of interesting. I I will be attending and look forward to uh, hearing what uh, uh, Andrew Deloach Esquire has to say to us. And, you know, he's one of those few guys that's capable of actually being an attorney and being saved. I just, you know, just want to point that out. Few attorneys are able to point that, pull that off. And so that's tomorrow. Um, Then what do we got? Uh, Monday. Two things uh, that we're going to talk about. First of all, we're going to listen to uh, uh, Tiger Woods' apology. And we're going to analyze it theologically because it's a confession of sins. And I want to point something out to you that I think is theologically very significant. Because during his apology, he talked about his Buddhism and uh, and made a statement uh, that I think is worth taking a look at. And so we'll be doing – not that he claims to be a Christian, but uh, the tragedy of that whole situation uh, it, it really it gives us an opportunity to look at it in light of the gospel. Because keep this in mind, keep this in mind. Uh, it's not that you and I are any holier than Tiger Woods because we're Christians. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! If you're thinking that you're morally excellent, uh, more morally excellent than Tiger Woods, <sighs> then today's edition of Fighting for the Faith should be helpful. In fact, uh, I'll be, for today's edition, we're going to be uh, playing a, a lecture, a conference lecture delivered by Jerry Bridges. For, uh, I think he's still with Navigators. And uh, this is a guy who's written uh, several books like The Pursuit of Holiness, uh, The Discipline of Grace, things like that. And uh, he's going to be talking about the number one enemy of of the, of the gospel, and that is self-righteousness. So if you think you're morally superior and excellent to Tiger Woods, you got to listen to today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. But uh, we're, So we're going to be analyzing uh, Tiger Woods' stuff theologically on uh, Monday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And then we're going to be playing audio from, a, from something that Creflo Dollar said. Apparently, if you're not tithing, uh, you, you should be shot. 
I wish I was making that up. If you want to hear that audio, you can actually go to the Museum of Idolatry and uh, take a look. It's the it, right now uh, as of Friday to the 19th. That's the number one post there at the Museum of Idolatry. So you definitely want to take a look at that. Anyway, so without further ado, Friday Light, what we do is we do one topic, and that's all we do. It, 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 the idea is it helps make the program a little bit shorter so that some people can catch up. Because, you know, of course, I like to uh, wax eloquent. Um, or is it eloquently? I'm all confused now. Let's just say that I'm into waxing. No, that doesn't sound right either. <laughs> I've completely lost my mind. So without any further ado, uh, here's our Friday Light lecture on the number one enemy to the gospel being self-righteousness. And uh, this is from uh, Jerry Bridges of uh, Navigator, and I hope you enjoy this lecture. This morning, we're going to look at just the opposite of the righteousness which we have in Christ. We're going to look at self-righteousness. And so with that, I would like for you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18. We're actually going to consider three different Pharisees. In the days of Jesus, the Pharisees were the very epitome of self-righteousness. And so we're going to look at the self-righteousness of three different Pharisees and the dangers of self-righteousness and how that self-righteousness is actually the opposite and, and, in fact, the enemy of the gospel, which tells us of the righteousness that we have in Christ. And so with that in mind, would you go with me to Luke chapter 18, and uh, I'm going to look at verse 1 and then go immediately to verse 9. And he told them a parable to the... I'm sorry, he also, in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fasted twi- I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But even, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to, down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We will see in this passage and in the others that we're going to look at some of the perils of self-righteousness. We all are familiar with the concept of virus. We know the HIV virus, and now we're dealing with the H1N1 virus. When I was a small child, I had the measles, which is a virus. And uh, today I stand before you uh, totally deaf in my right ear because the measles virus affected the auditory nerve and, and actually killed that auditory nerve. So virus is not something that we take lightly. Viruses can at least debilitate us, if not actually kill us. And this morning, I'd like for us to think of self-righteousness as a virus a virus that can debilitate our Christian lives and even in some instances can spiritually uh, kill us. We're going to see this morning that the, how that self-righteousness is in this a- aspect of being a virus is actually an enemy of the gospel. It is the enemy of the righteousness which we have in Christ because we either are righteous in Christ or we are righteous in ourselves. And so this message is applicable to all of us, even though we may be believers, because we still have the virus of self-righteousness in our spiritual constitution. Several years ago, I had the shingles. And you may not be familiar with that, but that is an outbreak of rash on your body. And the doctor said to me, that's the measles virus. It had been... uh, in my, in my body all of these years, dormant, and all of a sudden it's some weakness in my physical constitution that measles virus, the same virus, broke out, and I came down with the shingles. And so 
in this sense, that is an analogy, the fact that all of us, even though we may be believers, still have this virus of self-righteousness residing in us, and it is apt to break out in our lives at any time. So this message is applicable to all of us. And so I ask that you listen attentively, reflectively, and prayerfully, and ask God what he might have to say to each one of us this morning. This is not just a message in the sense that it's something nice to hear and say, okay, that's nice, I agree with that, and go out. But we pray that our lives will be different, that we'll be more sensitive to the prevalence of this virus of self-righteousness in our lives as a result of looking into the Scriptures today. In this particular passage in Luke 18, Jesus contrasts two men. First of all, the Pharisee, who in that day was the epitome of self-righteousness, not the epitome of righteous conduct. We all want to be righteous in our conduct, and righteousness simply means right action, living in a way that's pleasing to God, if you will. So there's nothing wrong with righteousness. But the problem is when we think that we are righteous and we have self-righteousness, and the Pharisees as a group were noted for their self-righteousness. And we notice this in this man here who kept all the minutiae of outward observance, but he neglected the heart. And this was so typical of the Pharisees. Jesus at one time said to them, "You, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside is all kinds of filth. And they were very careful to wash their outward observance, so to speak, but inside their hearts were filled with the filth of self-righteousness and sin. In contrast to this Pharisee, there was a tax collector. Now, the tax collectors in those days were collaborators with the Roman occupation forces. In order for us to understand how the Jews looked down upon the tax collectors, just consider for a moment the possibility that in some point in the future, our nation would be overrun and occupied, say, by Chinese forces. And so we are under the domination of a foreign power, and I pick China because it's the most uh, populous nation in all the world. Not that I have anything particularly against China, but because it's the most populous. And the possibility that at some time in the future that we might actually be overrun by the Chinese army and they would be our occupiers. And suppose that your next-door neighbor were to become a tax collector for the Chinese government. Think how you would look down upon him and despise him. And this is the way that the Jews viewed the tax collectors of that day because they not only were collaborators with the occupying forces, the Roman government, but also they had freedom to gouge the people. In other words, Rome required that they remit so much in the payment of taxes, but they could gouge people and charge more than that and keep the difference for themselves. And they were allowed to do this. And so we see here this tremendous contrast between this Pharisee who kept all the minutiae of the law and this man who was despised by all of society. But we see here that Jesus told this parable for two reasons. First of all, they trusted in themselves, and secondly, they treated others with contempt. Self-righteousness causes us to trust in ourselves. If you go out on the street or down into the local mall and you would ask a person why he or she expects to go to heaven, invariably the answer will be some phrase, some kind of, because I've been good. I asked a young man why he expected to go to heaven, and he said, well, I'm sure that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, and so because of that, I will go to heaven. We trust in ourselves, and so the person outside of Christ, the person out in the street, in the mall, is trusting in himself. And you can see how deadly that is, because when they trust in themselves, then they're not open to the fact that they need the righteousness of Christ. But it's not just the non-believers who are affected with self-righteousness. Christians do the same thing. 
We pray and then we begin to analyze ourselves and examine ourselves to see whether or not we are worthy enough for God to answer our prayer. And the answer is always, of course not. We're never, never worthy of God answering our prayers. The only reason God answers our prayers is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In one sense, Jesus bought and paid for every answer to prayer that you will ever receive. But the self-righteous person looks within himself or herself to see and possibly uh, to find a reason why God might bless. Because I had my quiet time this morning or something like that. The second danger here, not only do they trust in themselves, but he says they treat others with contempt. Self-righteousness causes us to look contemptuously at other people. And I would say today, as I observe evangelical Christendom in the United States, that this is a tremendous uh, objection that people have against us because we tend to look out at society as a whole and we look contemptuously. We look at the pro-abortionists. We look at the homosexuals. We look at the, the murderers and the people who do violence and all of these flagrant sins and we judge them. We treat them with contempt. It might not even be the flagrant sins. Several years ago, I was driving out of our subdivision, out of our neighborhood, and I came to the first traffic signal uh, coming out of our neighborhood, and the light was red, and before me was one car, and on the back of that car was a Darwin symbol. Now, if you're not familiar with the Darwin symbol, someone has taken the fish symbol, the emblem for Christians, and have put a couple of feet on it so it looks like an amphibian rather than a fish. And then in the middle of that, there's the word Darwin. So, in other words, this person driving this car was obviously an evolutionist. And as I, I remember as I drove up behind him and as I saw the Darwin symbol on the back of his car, the thought came into my mind, yeah, he'll find out someday. I was contemptuous. And then the thought came to me by the Holy Spirit, yes, and but for the grace of God, go I. And I realized that the only difference between that man, who basically was must have been an atheist, or at least he believed in evolution instead of the creator, and myself, was not that I'm smarter or wiser or anything else, but it was purely the grace of God. But self-righteousness denies, in effect, the grace of God. Self-righteousness looks within ourselves and finds some reason why we are superior to the people out in society who are committing the big sins. And so we see here that the two dangers, first of all, they trust in themselves. Secondly, they look with contempt toward others. Now I'd like for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and we will see another danger of self-righteousness. In my opinion, this danger is even more dangerous than the two we have just looked at. Chapter 15 begins with these two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And in response to their grumbling, Jesus told three parables, the parable of the lost Cohen, the parable of the, product, uh, the, parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost Cohen, and the parable of the prodigal son. And all three of these parables are intended to teach how God reaches out to the sinners. God doesn't uh, wait until we clean up our act. God doesn't wait until the deacon in a, in a very, very conservative church back, this was some years ago when, when uh, men first began to wear long hair, probably about in the 60s, and um, this young man came into this church with long hair, and the deacon took a look at him, and he said, young man, go and get a haircut, and then you can come to church. 
This is the way these people were. They wanted, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling because Jesus would, would, uh, receive the sinners and would actually eat with them, would actually have fellowship with them. And so Jesus told these three parables. But of course, the parable that is most famous is the parable of the prodigal son. But rather than looking at the prodigal son, I want us to look at his older brother. Now, the older brother is not called a Pharisee, but he's obviously acting out the part of a Pharisee because Jesus tells the story in response to the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling. And so in that sense, we can say that uh, the older brother is another Pharisee. The older brother, well, let me uh, get to the text here. Just briefly, the story of the younger brother called the prodigal son is the one who disgraced his father by claiming the inheritance, his part of the inheritance before the father died. And then he takes his money and he goes off and he spends it in uh, sinful living. And uh, then he's driven to the point of despair and he comes to himself and he comes back home to, to repent before the father and to ask to be re- reinstated, not as a son, but as a hired man. But the father, and you know the story very well, how the father reaches out to him and embraces him and forgives him and restores him to the position of a son in the family. Now, with that in mind, verse 25. Now, his older brother, uh, older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The danger here of self-righteousness is that we feel that God is unfair to us. The father in this parable obviously represents God in his compassion and mercy and how he reaches out to us and he is ready and willing and eager to forgive those who come in repentance to him. And so the son who is angry with the father and accuses his father of being unfair to him is a picture of us today when in our self-righteousness we accuse God of being unfair. It is the self-righteous attitude of a man who said to me about his mother, and let me explain here why he said what I'm about to tell you, what he said. His father was a pastor, had been for many years, and now his mother is dying of bone cancer, which is a very painful way to die. And this man said to me, after all she's done for God, this is the thanks she gets. She has worked hard. She has served God sacrificially. And now God is not being fair to her by causing her or allowing her to die this painful death. I think of another friend, a woman who is slightly younger than I am. Her father died when she was 18 years of age. Her mother remarried, and uh, she never got along very well with her father-in-law. And she was now in her 50s when she said this to me. She said, I still have a bone to pick with God about the death of my father. 30 to 40 years have passed by, and she still has not, quote, forgiven God because of the early death of her father. You see, when we're self-righteous, like the older brother, when, when we think that we have obeyed God's commands and yet God has not come through to us, then we begin to accuse God. I learned this lesson the very hard way, thankfully, early in my Christian life. It was in the year 1953. I had gotten a full-ride scholarship uh, from the government 
through university in the Navy ROTC program, and I had done active duty to repay the government for my education. And during that time, I came in contact with the organization called the Navigators, the organization that I still serve with today. At that time, it was a ministry in and to Navy men. That's why the name the Navigators. And uh, as I continued to have contact with them, I sensed that God might be leading me to serve with the Navigators in my adult life. And so as I got out of the Navy, completing my service, and I wanted to be involved with the Navigators, and you just don't go and uh, apply for a job, but you work as a volunteer. And by and by, if they sense that God might be leading you to work for them, they invite you to come on staff. And so I um, needed to get a job. And having a degree in engineering and a 3.7 grade point average, I was pretty confident I would have no problem. And yet I did. Several weeks went by, and uh, there was still no job. I'd, I'd applied in San Diego, which at that time was quite an aircraft industry town, and uh, nothing was coming by. And one afternoon, I was quite discouraged and uh, out of sorts with God, and I thought to myself, I need something from the Bible. At least I knew enough to knew, realize that in the Bible would be the answer to my problem. I don't know why I thought that this would help, but I turned to the book of Job. Now that's, yeah, you laugh at that, and, and you should, because Job's situation and my situation were light years different apart. But I turned to the book of Job, and I began to just sort of skim read through the book of Job, just hoping that there might be something there for me, and sure enough, there was. I got all the way to chapter 34, and then lightning struck. Lightning struck from these verses, and uh, this is found in Job 34, verses 18 and 19. And uh, this is just in the King James Version of the Bible. So you will not find this um, in your ESV or NIV or whatever you happen to have. But it says in the King James Version, Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they all are the work of his hands. Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes ye are ungodly? In other words, God is saying, or Elihu, who is saying, you wouldn't say this to a king, you wouldn't accuse your king of being wicked, or your prince of being ungodly. And if that's true, how much less... Do you not accuse God of being unfair? Oh, man, this is a great, great lecture. Great points here. I I think many of us can relate to having those times in our lives when things haven't gone well and we're angry with God. And uh, here, Jeff Bridges is pointing out that this may in fact, or Jerry Bridges, sorry, Jeff Bridges, Ah, see, I can get mad at God for causing my brain to uh, yeah, fall into decrepitude. <laughs> Jeff Bridges. Ah, Jerry Bridges here is uh, making a very valid, valid point, and that is, is that that is a sign. It and is those a- verses struck me like a bolt of light. That is a sign of of self righteousness. Anyway, we'll we'll com- we'll continue with this uh, lecture on the other side of the break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, I'd love to hear feedback. Even if you're you know you're tooling through the archives and you found something in a previous edition that's e- even a year or two old, you could still comment on it. You can uh, you can contact me by the way. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando... We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you. You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. Warning, if you are self-righteous, this program is going to uh, take that away from you. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And uh, here's the great news is that you, you get to partner with us. And by partnering with us financially, you're actually um, participating in what it is that we're doing here. And so the way you can partner with us is a couple of different ways. And uh, namely, if you visit our website, www.fightingforthefaith.com, all one big word, um, then what happens is on our homepage, you will see uh, two prominently displayed friendly yellow buttons that's right they're friendly they're yellow um notice the allusion to the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy okay anyway friendly yellow buttons are right there and uh, you can actually click on one of them that says join our crew that's right join our crew what we're what the crew is is uh people who have signed up so that they will automatically have six dollars and 95 cents 
deducted from their account every month. And uh, the goal here is is that what we what we really want to do is um, is have everybody that listens to Fighting for the Faith have a way that they can participate and support us uh, financially. So the idea is to have a lot of people giving a little bit of money. That's the general idea. And it's only $6.95. Just put some perspective on $6.95. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, what's a Vente uh, mocha running at Starbucks right now? It's four seventy-five, almost 5 bucks. So, I mean, for the for just a little bit more than a Vente drink, at Starbucks, uh, you can support and partner with us uh, in and help us to continue to pay our bills. And once we get to a thousand listeners who've joined the Pirate Christian Crew, um, then uh, then that will ensure that month after month after month that we're able at least on a minimum basis to pay our bills. And paying bills is important because we don't have a line of credit. We don't have uh, you know <laughs> nothing, nothing like that. I mean. We want we run a tight ship is probably the best way to put it. Pirate uh, Christian Radio is a tight ship because we don't have money to throw overboard, and we don't want to throw money overboard at all. And so, anyway, that's the the idea. So, and if you want to figure out what our annual budget is to run Pirate Christian Radio here, take six dollars and ninety five cents, multiply it times a thousand, and then take that uh, thousand and multiply it times twelve months. And you'll know what our budget is. It's it, yeah, <laughs> completely transparent here as far as what we, you know. Th- there it is. That's our f- that's our annual budget for uh, for 2010. So there you have it. Um, but uh, it, and again, we're we're about halfway. We're a little over halfway to our goal of having a thousand people join the Pirate Christian Radio Cove. And of course, if you'd like to actually donate a flat amount of money that you know that is greater than or different than $6.95. Let's say you want to donate above and beyond that. You can do so by clicking on the donate button and keep this in mind. I think if uh, if you uh, donate $87 or above, then you also get access to the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove. That's our growing treasure trove of theological resources plundered through Christian history designed to help you grow deeper in Christian Theology, Sound Doctrine, and Christ-Centered Apologetics. Great stuff, and uh, I'm putting new treasures in the cove on a regular basis, so you don't want to miss that. So, and of course, if you'd like to um, send in your contribution, you can do so by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're going to get back with our uh, lecture here from Jerry Bridges from the Navigators. I can't believe I called him Jeff Bridges. <sighs> Just, you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'll back this up just a couple of seconds so that we can get some context. And uh, he's making a great point here about uh, pointing a finger at God as if he owes us something. And the name of this lecture is The Number One Enemy of the Gospel, Self-Righteousness. Here is Jerry Bridges. Your king of being wicked or your prince of being ungodly. And if that's true, how much less do you not accuse God of being unfair? And those verses struck me like a bolt of lightning and I was smitten and I was actually driven to my knees in prayer of repentance and confession of my arrogance against God because I had effectively accused God of being unfair to me. You see, this is what why self-righteousness is so dangerous because when we begin to look at ourselves and we begin to look at how faithful we've been and how righteous we've been and how sacrificial we've been in our giving or our service or something like that, if we have any sense of self-righteousness at all, if this self-righteous virus, even though it's dormant, and in that period of spiritual weakness, when we are going through a difficulty and we begin to reflect upon how faithful we have been and how obedient we have been, and yet I'm in this situation, and we begin to accuse God of being unfair to us. I think that um, our whole thinking about God's grace affects us in this way. A couple of years ago, I read this quote from a pastor, and uh, I do not condemn this pastor, and I'll explain. But let me give you the quote. 
This pastor said, I believe our souls are saved by grace. But I'm certain, notice the word certain. I believe our souls are saved by grace, but I'm certain we earn God's favor by our obedience. When you think like that, then you begin to think you earn God's blessings and and so you've done your part and you're not getting the payback. Paul in Romans 4 verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, his works are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you believe what this pastor believes, then if you are obedient as you uh, evaluate your obedience then you're going to be thinking that God owes you a payback. It's not a gift. God's blessings are not a gift of his grace, but you've earned God's blessings by your obedience. This is where we see how dangerous self-righteousness can be and how it is exactly an enemy of the gospel. The gospel says to us, our blessings come through Christ. Self-righteousness says, Our blessings come to us because we earn them through our obedience or our sacrificial service. And whatever your checkoff list is of obedience, you had your quiet time and you're faithful in church and you're a member of a care group and you give generously in the offering in all of these kinds of things. And if you're looking at these things and saying, okay, I've done these things, now God owes me something. This is a significant danger of self-righteousness. And this is why I believe that this expression of self-righteousness is even more dangerous than self-righteousness when we treat others with contempt. It's one thing to look down our religious nose at other people, the flagrant sinners out in society, and to feel ourselves more righteous than they are. It's quite another thing to look at God and accuse God of being unfair because we feel we have earned his blessings and now we're not receiving them. The third Pharisee that I want us to look at is found in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, and this story begins at verse 36. Now, the difference between this account and the accounts in Luke 18 And 15 is in the first two, they are parables. Jesus told these stories in order to make his point. This is an actual historical event. And the the story, the account of the story is that a certain Pharisee whose name was Simon invited Jesus to uh, have um, dinner with him. And so Jesus goes to his house and um In verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And let me just stop at that point and explain something about the use of the word sinner. Now, in the Pharisees evaluation, anyone was a sinner who did not observe their laws. In other words, if you were a person who just disregarded the exactness and the minutia of uh, law-keeping of the Pharisees, then you're regarded as a sinner. You might be a nice person, but you just, you know, didn't bother with all the minutiae of the Pharisees. But there were varying degrees of sinners. And oftentimes the word sinner means a person of ill repute. And this is the sense in which uh, this woman uh, is named a sinner. Behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner. If you drop down to verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. She was notorious. She had a reputation. She was known by Simon the Pharisee. And the implication that it's not stated here, but the implication is she was an immoral woman a woman of ill repute. And so, again, we see this contrast. In in the first uh, situation that we looked at, it was the Pharisee and the tax collector. In the second one, it was the older brother who had always been obedient and his prodigal younger brother. And now we see a Pharisee and an immoral woman. 
This is not a parable. This is an actual event. Now, to understand this story, we must assume, in the words of the late uh, commentator Paul Harvey, that this is the rest of the story. Paul, if any of you ever listened to Paul Harvey, who died uh, earlier this year, you remember that he would say something, and then at a certain point he would say, and now for the rest of the story. And what we have here in the text is the rest of the story. So what is the beginning of the story? The only way that this story makes sense, and, and I have the agreement concurrence of a number of commentators on what I'm about to say, but the only way that this story makes sense is to assume that this woman had had a prior encounter with Jesus. And in this encounter with Jesus, she had become painfully aware of her sinfulness. Imagine an immoral woman in the presence of Jesus. And she becomes painfully, acutely aware of her sinfulness. And then she receives from Jesus the assurance of her forgiveness. Like the woman in in John chapter 8 where Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. And so she has become aware of her sin. She has received assurance of forgiveness. And now she comes to Jesus to express her gratitude and worship of Jesus by anointing his feet with this precious ointment. And the Pharisee is offended by this. The Pharisee is offended by the fact that that Jesus would allow this woman to even touch him. Now, this is a beautiful story, and I, I could actually give an entire message on this, but let me just go immediately to the point I want to make in this. Jesus knew what Simon the Pharisee was thinking, and so he said, In verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. We see here a principle. And this principle is stated uh, Uh, again in, in verse 47, but it's stated in the opposite direction. Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, (coughs) for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, why did Jesus say this? Because in verse 44, He turns toward the woman, but he says to Simon, he's saying, see this woman over here, but he's talking to Simon. (coughs) He said, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. I want you to notice the contrast here between her effusive display of gratitude and Simon's discourteous treatment. It was customary in those days when you invited a guest to come in because they wore sandals and the roads were not paved with asphalt, but they were dusty. And so you would come in with dusty feet. And so it was it was the common thing as a courtesy to have one of the lowly slaves in the household, to wash the feet of the guest. Simon did not bother to do this. Didn't even give Jesus water to wash his own feet. It was customary in those days to give a kiss. Simon did not do that. It was customary to pour some oil, some olive oil, on the head. Simon did not do that. In contrast, the woman had washed his feet with her tears. Now, remember, before she began to shed her tears, his feet were dusty. So when you mix water with dust, what do you get? You get some form of mud. And she washed his feet, not just the dust, but now the mud from his feet, and she dried his feet with her hair. And then she proceeds to pour on his feet this very expensive ointment. What is the difference? 
In verse 47, he who is forgiven little loves little. The self-righteous person does not realize how much he or she has been forgiven. And as a result of that, uh, they have no love for Jesus. Simon, in his self-righteousness, sensed no need of forgiveness. Hence, he had no reason to love Jesus. And the self Now, I want to point something out here. <clears throat> I don't know if... Uh, if uh... Uh, Mr. Bridges here is going to get to this, but I want to point something out. If you go back to the text, this is a fine, fine job that he's doing here. And there's one thing that a lot of people miss in Jesus' telling of this parable. Okay, So I'm going to back this up uh, just a little bit text-wise. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And what we're going to do is um, we're going to look at verses 36 through 50. Okay? And we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna regale you with the story, and I want to point out something along the way—a very, very critical point in the parable that Jesus tells. Okay, since we're talking about self-righteousness and its danger to the gospel itself. Okay, let's read the story, and I'm reading from the English Sanctified Version. It says one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus answered and answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, well, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. But when... They could not pay. He canceled the debt of both. Now, this is an important piece of this story that a lot of people just kind of run right over. Okay, so here's the idea is, is that obviously Jesus is giving a contrast between this sinner woman and Simon, the Pharisee. Okay. A certain money letter, one owed 500, the other 50. The important key explosive phrase in this text is when they could not pay, neither the one who owed 500 denarii nor the one, the other who owed only 50 denarii, neither of them could pay their debts. Neither of them. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Jesus completely, in the telling of this story, obliterates the concept of self-righteousness. Just absolutely, to use a pirate term, blows it out of the water. Completely explodes it right there. Neither could pay their debt. I don't care how much good living that you've had. I don't care if you've never smoked a cigarette, never had alcohol touch your lips, never touched tobacco, have never played cards, have never uh, danced in public. Um, I don't care if you if you wear only modest clothing, have the proper length hair, make sure that your beard is the right trimmed length, um, and uh, and that you've o- you only eat kosher food and don't even own a television and only read books and things that are uplifting and spiritually pure. Jesus said, neither of them could pay their debts. No amount of good living is going to make up for the fact you can't pay your debt to God. It's impossible. And God is not interested in you paying your debt 
he's interested in, quote, canceling your debt by paying it for you on the cross. So those who are trying to earn it, the self-righteous, well, you can try if you want to go ahead and pay your debt, but you can't. And why would you want to anyway? Christ has canceled it. He's paid the debt in full for you on the cross. So we read, so now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to them, you have judged rightly. So then turn toward, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, uh, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. All in an act of worship, too, by the way. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, they are forgiven, for she loved much. If they weren't forgiven because she loved much, you could tell that they were forgiven. Her many sins were forgiven because of her love. But he who is forgiven little, yeah, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And folks, listen, you and I don't get to sit at Jesus' feet. Not like this, not in this lifetime. But the things that are written in the New Testament are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing that we have might, might have life in his name. And so Jesus across the centuries is telling all of us sinners, all of us who know that we have no chance ever of ever paying God back the debt that we owe because of our sin. He pronounced to you, pronounces to you and he pronounces to me, son Daughter, your sins are forgiven. These are the most comforting words that we could ever hear from our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And these words were not written just for her benefit, but they're written for ours because this tells us that in Christ we have a gracious and merciful God who calls us to repentance and forgiveness not counting our trespasses against us, not giving us what we deserve. What kind and loving words these are, not only to that woman who's a sinner, but to you and I who are equally sinful as her, who equally cannot pay our debt to God. We continue. Righteous person senses no need of forgiveness. I remember several years ago, I was observing a lady that I had reasonably close contact with, and she was very judgmental of other people, just about anything. It was not only spiritual reasons that she was judgmental, but uh, other reasons also. Any, anyone who didn't conform to her outlook on life, was uh, she was judgmental toward. And so I asked her one day, Can you in any way identify with the Apostle Paul when she said, when he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost? And much to my surprise, she said, no. I cannot in any way identify with the Apostle Paul. And then I realized why she was so judgmental. She had no sense of her own need. She had no sense of her own self-righteousness and no sense of forgiveness. And consequently, she was judgmental. But Jesus, when he said, he who is forgiven little loves little, we know from the parable of of the two debtors that the opposite is true. He who is forgiven much loves much. And this is why the sinful woman was so effusive in her expression of love and gratitude because she realized how big a sinner she was and she realized how much she had been forgiven. Someone has said, consciousness of one's own sinfulness and the assurance of forgiveness are the foundations of our love to God. Let me repeat that. Consciousness of one's own sinfulness and the assurance of forgiveness are the foundations of our love to God. Earlier in our service, 
we sang that great old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. I want to ask you, when you sang those words, what effect did it have on you? As I sat there, and I don't stand when you stand because I have a bad back and it has so many minutes to go. And um, so uh, I'm sitting there and tears came to my eyes. Jesus paid it all. Sin has left a crimson stain on me, but he washed it white as snow. Does that really affect you? Do you really believe that? Or you just sing those words without thinking? A self-righteous person might even sing those words, and it makes no effect on the person. What is it that will love? What is it that will cause you to love and serve the Savior? What is it that will motivate you? If you operate on the basis of self-righteousness, you will obey and serve in order to earn God's favor. If you operate on the basis of self-righteousness, you will from time to time think that you deserve God's favor. And you might even accuse him when you don't receive what you think you should. But if you see yourself as still a practicing sinner, even though a saved sinner, even though washed in the blood of the Lamb, but still daily a practicing sinner, and you see Christ dying for those very sins that you've committed even this day, then you will obey and serve out of love and gratitude. The cure for self-righteousness is to realize how much we've been forgiven. Instead of comparing ourselves with others, we, like the tax collector, compare ourselves with God and our attitude is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Amen. Yep, exactly. This is what he did when he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the cure for self-righteousness not only uh, causes us to cry out and recognize our need of God's mercy, but it also motivates us to want to obey and serve him. Yep. And it's more than just a motivation, by the way. I I would just take this up just a little bit more. It's more than just a motivation because what we learn through the reading of the scriptures is that those who have been given the gift of repentance, remorse for sins, and forgiveness of sins are no longer counted among those who are dead in trespasses and sins, but those who are alive in Jesus Christ, those who are alive. That's why when we talk about good works, you know, what does Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 say? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, we are a new creation in Christ, and we those who have been saved by grace through faith are those who are a new creation in Christ, and they're saved for good works. Christ, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. There's nothing you can add to Christ's perfect righteousness. You've been now set free from sin, death, and the devil, and have made, been made alive with Christ. In your baptism, you're buried with Christ. You're raised with Christ. You are raised to newness of life. And so it's beyond just motivation. It's beyond just, oh, I need to have an attitude of gratitude. It's so much deeper than attitude. So much deeper. We're talking about an ontological change from being dead to being alive. That's why James, when he writes in his epistle, just as the body that is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. 
you can't say a body that isn't breathing is alive. Just like you can't say that somebody who claims to have faith but has no works, how can they be alive in Christ? That's like saying you believe in in human in living people who don't breathe. Good luck on that one. Good luck on that. Now, I'm not preaching self-righteousness at all. I'm talking about the fruit of faith. But I just want to make sure that you understood. It's more than motivation. It's way deeper than that. He that is forgiven little, loves little. He that is forgiven much, loves much. And when we love much because we've been forgiven much, then we will want to obey much, not to earn God's favor, but because we have it. When we love much because we've been forgiven much, we will serve much. We will serve sacrificially. We will never feel as the man did who said to me about his mother, after all she's done for God, this is the thanks she gets. When we love much because we've been forgiven much, we will pour out our lives to him, not in precious ointment, but in sacrificial obedience and service to God. May God help us to face our self-righteousness and to see our remaining sinfulness and to praise him and to worship him and to obey him because though sin had left that crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Good stuff. Good stuff. Great lecture. Worth passing along. Well, folks, we're at the end of another broadcast week here at Fighting for the Faith. And I just want to briefly remind you, if you haven't joined the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, this is a good time to do so. It's a mere $6.95 a month, and you can join by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. Or, of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, and you can uh, donate securely online, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. Uh, I know you all have some feedback to give me on this. Uh, or, of course, if you even want to comment on anything we've talked about here on this edition, any previous editions, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins and mine. Amen. We'll see you next week.